opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, we have shirts for sale now, so go on to our website at www.freshlybrewednoir.com and use code FBN2023 for $5 off your purchase. We currently are selling in the U.S. and working on international sales. Thanks you guys for your support. Welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Summer. And I'm Jennifer. And this is episode 49, Lonnie Franklin, aka The Grim Sleeper. We are bringing you another serial killer. Of course we are, because that's all we're doing in 2023, pretty much, except for a few paranormals, right? Yeah, I think I'm bringing those in. You are. Well, and our collab's going to be a paranormal too, right? Right, we're doing the ghost tour. So that's some business. We do have some business to talk about. So we're going to do a collab with another podcast soon, and it's going to be paranormal. Look out for it. We're excited about it. We might be doing an escape room. I think so. Themed. Right. Because they have a ghost tour. And then we're also going to possibly do the escape room, which is underground. So if you don't hear from us, <laughs> we're probably trapped underground. Yes. <laughs> so. But until then, we're here to bring you the, the serial killer content. And so this one is the Grim Sleeper. So what is that all about? Well, he was given this name because he took a hiatus. They believe that he just stopped killing for 14 years. My opinion is, I don't think he did. You think he was still killing people? Yep. And we'll kind of get into why when we talk more about like the crimes and stuff. Okay. Are you ready? So ready. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So Lonnie Franklin Jr. was born on August 30th, 1952. And he grew up in South Central Los Angeles, California. I feel like I cover a lot of California cases. I know you do. It should be me since I'm from California, but you end up covering more than I do. I know. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) So during his childhood, he wasn't the brightest student and he struggled academically. It took him longer than normal to learn how to read and write. Around the age of seven, his father taught him how to drive, which led him to gaining an obsession with cars. And then with this obsession, he'd learned that he was good with his hands and he was able to fix cars up. As we know, that is a skill that many people need because they don't know how to do it, right? Yeah, it is very good. So he liked mechanics. Yep. This would become a hobby of his and then also a career path. So as a mechanic, he would come across many people who needed his services. And then through those interactions with people, it was said that he was a very charismatic and charming person. So I think like, obviously, when you're in that business, people have to like you to want to pay you, right? You have to go to the mechanic. Sometimes. I mean... Do you like your mechanic? I think I do, yeah. Okay. My husband knows how to work on cars, and so does my middle son. So yeah. I've always <laughs> lived with mechanics. <laughs> you never have They're to, like, default. acquire services <laughs> I, because, <laughs> like, you married. I, I married services. Do... <laughs> he knows how to do everything. I married a jack-of-all-trades. Yeah, he can pretty much do everything. Yeah, you lucked out. Sometimes, I don't know, because then, as, like, dentist wives will tell you, like, they're always working on other people's teeth, but then if the wife needs something, she's, like, the last to get things done. Really? I think so. Yeah, so sometimes it's a blessing and a curse, because you're like, I could just take this in and get it done really quickly. That's true. 
I guess too many people know of his skills, huh? So they're like, we need you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, you can help your wife anytime. <laughs> but he was liked? Yeah. Okay. He was a very likable, approachable person. And so people would go to him. Okay. So some would say that this charm is what drew people or specifically women, to him. He knew how to flirt with women and manipulate them. When he was 16, he had already been arrested twice for Grand Theft Auto and burglary. So not a great track record so far. Mm -hmm. His father made him join the army as an attempt to get him back on the right track. And by spring of 1974, he was now 21 years old and stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. Wait, what? (laughs) Stuttgart. Stuttgart. Okay. And he was working as a cook. On April 17th, 1974, Franklin and two of his army friends actually went out and they wanted to commit a rape. They wanted to assault a woman. What? Yeah. So they attempted to kidnap one woman, but they were unsuccessful. And then after that, they were like, well, let's try again. So they came across a 17-year-old girl walking to the train station. They ambushed her at knife point and forced her into the car. Franklin drove them to a remote location where they raped her and they took photos of her. The girl convinced the men to drive her home. And I don't know, she was just very smart because she talked to Lonnie and she like ended up giving her number to him and said that she hoped that he would call her. And he did, he called her. And um, when they made plans to meet up, it was the police who showed up. Nice. Yeah, so she had informed the police of her attack, and they planned to lure him to the station for capture. After he was arrested, he was tried and convicted on charges for kidnap and rape and was sentenced up to 40 months in prison, which equates to three years and four months. And to me, that kind of sounds short. It does. I think the sentencing for rape, well, at least in some states, is way too short. You know, sometimes it's just probation. Sometimes it's really short sentences. Yeah, it's just unreal. And then the fact that there was also a weapon involved, like they could have killed her. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like that makes sense. But either way, he doesn't end up serving that time. He ends up serving less than a year in Germany. And then he was shipped back to the U.S. And in May of 1976, he was discharged from the army and headed back to Los Angeles. So once he was back in Los Angeles, he got married and had two kids And eventually, he became a garage attendant for the LAPD. And then later, he left to work in the sanitation department. And so through that, he became well acquainted with the city's alleyways and dumpsters and landfills. And um, he was also known in the neighborhood as a friendly neighbor, father, and husband. So he was well-liked. see where this is going. He knew hiding places for bodies, huh? Yep. He knew how to cover his tracks. Now, this is important. So the crime rate in L.A. was very high during this time. There were 800 to 1,100 murders reported in the city that year. And there were only about 135 homicide detectives. And this was in the late 70s? This was in the 80s. Okay. The city was saturated with drug and gang violence, leaving law enforcement overwhelmed. And cocaine was like a hot commodity. It was highly trafficked at the time, and it brought in like violence and prostitution and um, addiction. Franklin's first known victim was 29-year-old Deborah Jackson. She worked as a cocktail waitress, and in August of 1985, she was seen leaving her house and entering a bus on Imperial Highway to visit her friend. 
It's not certain, though, where she got off the bus, but a few days later, her body was found near Gage and Vermont Avenue in an alley underneath debris. Her ID was missing when found, and when investigating the scene, there was suggestion that there was sexual motivation in her death. An autopsy report confirmed that she was shot in the chest three times. The direction of the bullets were shot downward, meaning he was above her when she was shot. So due to the high crime rate, police initially assumed that her murder was drug-related. Wow, so they did they not look into it? Um, they did, but that was just their initial reaction. Okay. Being that she was the first victim, they didn't really know what the motive would have been. And they weren't doing forensics back then as far as DNA, because this was the 80s. So that wasn't a thing. Yeah, I think in the late 80s is when that kind of started to come about, but it was a fairly new process. So, you know, they didn't have much DNA even in the system to track people. Right. In August of 1986, 34-year-old Henrietta Wright's body was discovered under a discarded mattress. In July of 1987, police were alerted about another body that was found through a phone call to 911. In an alley on East 56th Street, they found 23-year-old Barbara Ware. She was shot in the chest and covered with a gas tank. This same year, they also would find the bodies of 26-year-old Bernita Sparks and Mary Below. Sparks' body was found in a trash bin. In 1988, the bodies of 22-year-old Lashrika Jefferson and 18-year-old Alicia Monique Alexander were found. All women had been shot with a 25 caliber handgun. DNA was found on all the breasts of the women, but technology was so new at the time that they just did not have a way to track down the suspect. At this point, they realized there was a sexual predator and serial killer in the city, but they kept it secret from the public because they didn't want the killer to flee. And this is kind of, like, controversial. Like They, they didn't like the warn fa- the public or anything? No, they didn't. And they say they didn't because they didn't want the killer to find out that they were looking for them and then just, like, flee. And I guess there's two sides so, to so that, So we right? would rather, like, a bunch of other women from our community show up dead. And unfortunately, that's what ends up happening. Yeah, that seems like a bad plan. Yeah. On November 19th, 1988, Anitra Washington, 30-year-old mother of two, was walking near Normandy Avenue. She said a man drove up to her and approached her in an orange Ford Pinto, asking if she needed a ride. She said no at first, but he kept talking to her, and eventually she thought he seemed nice enough. And this is just, like, another affirmation where it's like, if you have something, like, a gut feeling... Yeah, listen to it. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, he persisted, right? And so she was like, all right, well, maybe he's a nice guy and I'll just give him a chance. But he was not. Post-editing, Jennifer here. I'm here because our audio cut out. And so I'm here to just fill in the blanks. She gets into the car. He drives for a while and eventually gets to 81st Street and parks over by the curb. He said he needed to go get some money and entered a house on that street got back into the car, and continued driving. Then moments later, he took out a gun and shot her in the chest. She goes in and out of consciousness and pleads for him to take her to the hospital. He drives around again, he pulls over, and he rapes her. And she states that he takes out a Polaroid camera and then takes a picture of her. So he shot her first and then raped her, then took a picture? Yeah. He's 
sadistic. He's an evil guy. I don't think that there's any way, any other way to categorize him. Mm-hmm. Now, this time, he did not take her to an alley or a dumpster. Instead, he just shoved her out of the car because he thought she was dead. Was she pretending to be dead? Or was she unconscious and he thought she was dead? I think she was unconscious oh. and he just thought she was dead, but she wasn't. And so when she um, was pushed out, amazingly, she made her way to her friend's house. Wow. Yeah. Like she was still strong enough somehow. That's amazing. She was rushed to Harbor UCLA Medical Center. When she spoke to police, they believed her attack was connected to what was happening to the other previous victims of this serial killer because of the shot in the chest and the rape yes because that's his mo right at this time that's his mo yeah so even though she had lost 20 percent of her blood oh my god surgeons were still able to save her life once the bullet had been removed from her chest it was determined to be the same type of bullet that was used to kill the other victims and she gave police a description of the man but the sketch turned out to be like a quite generic um, is that the sketch? Picture? Yeah. That does not look anything like him. It doesn't, yeah. They no. would have arrested the wrong person based on this sketch. Oh, yeah. So it was hard for them to identify who the killer was. I wish we could have pop-up pictures for our listeners so a picture we're looking at could pop up for them so they could see what we're seeing. That would be cool. Maybe Come on, Apple, on and... Spotify, figure it out. <laughs> Some visuals up in there. Yeah, just on certain things, like a little picture could pop up. Or, you know, when we do our YouTube that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we might get there. We'll see. <laughs> now, so after news of Anitria's survival, Franklin realized, like, okay, I need to lay low because, like, she can identify me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he just faded back into, like, his little friendly neighborhood man facade. Is this when he wasn't, like, is this the part where he is supposedly sleeping yeah. as far as his predatory ways? Supposedly, that's this is where he, when he stopped. But you don't think so? No. Okay, tell me why. Well, we will continue. <laughs> You're like, I will. <laughs> Just listen. I'm impatient. <laughs> I know, but don't worry. We'll get we'll get there. Okay. So the next confirmed crime would not take place until 14 years later. This is obviously such a traumatic case. I think everyone's like just brutally murdered, treated like trash. But this one really, like, I was, like, tearing up when I was researching about her. This next victim. Yeah. In late 2001, 15-year-old Princess Bertha Mew went missing in South Central L.A. Princess had a really tough childhood growing up in foster care. Um, She was known to be one of L.A.'s worst cases of child abuse. And at that time... Uh, She was horribly brutalized, and she had to spend months in the hospital recovering. When she was two, she was taken in to another foster family, and she was raised alongside her sister, Samara Harard, in Claremont, California. Uh, She had to learn how to walk and talk again after being so badly beaten and neglected. Oh my god. When Samara's mother passed away... Um, Princess had to be rehomed to a different family in South Central LA. The two sisters, they'd keep in touch despite being separated. So they had a good relationship. And um, it sounds like the new family that she was with, they weren't treating her well. And so she was having a difficult time in her new home and she attempted to run away, but she was unsuccessful. 
And Samara, like, she pleaded with her to hang in there and just wait until she was 18, right? She's 15 at the time. Um, so a few years could seem like forever. I'm sure with what she was going through. Yeah. It's easy and, to tell somebody that, that they're going through that. Yeah, they're actually, like, living there, and that's, like, their day-to-day. I think it's easier said than done. But, you know, she had good intentions. She said, like, you know, once you're 18, you could just do whatever you want, and you can live with me, and it'll just be better. Mm-hmm. But in December, she ran away again, and then her body was later found nude a few months later in March of 2002. And so she was badly beaten, raped, strangled, but she was not shot. So do they think she may have been a victim? She was a victim. Oh, she was. They were able to confirm that? Yeah. So was this after his 14-year period where he wasn't murdering then he starts again yes and i think he does that because he needs to switch up his mo he's like if i'm gonna start doing this again i have to be smarter you know oh so he doesn't shoot his victim now because he's trying to change it up so the police won't catch on yeah oh my gosh the poor girl i know and so it just was really sad all of these victims obviously they have a life to live and like it could have been a great one. It, it just sounds like with her, she just didn't have a great one from the start. And so for her to also have like such a horrible way out, like mm-hmm. it's just, it's just not fair. In July of 2003, 35-year-old Valerie McCorby's body was found in an alleyway near a school by a crossing guard. She was found fully clothed with her breast exposed and her manner of death was found to be strangulation. DNA testing had become more of a common practice and it had advanced around this time. And the DNA found on her body was linked to Princess's death and also the murders from the 80s. Oh, so now they know it's the same person. Yes, but they don't know who it is. Okay. They just know it's a match. Right, because his DNA wouldn't be in the system necessarily unless they had fingerprints from his previous arrest records. But like they wouldn't have his DNA. Okay, but they know it's all connected now. Yes, they know this is the same person who is committing these crimes. Wow. Okay. Um, obviously, this was alarming. You you know, these crimes were happening in the 80s, and now we're in the 2000s, and this they killer is again. still out there. Yeah, that's scary. In the same area, too, still? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like we talked about, Franklin's MO would change from shooting his victims to strangling them with his bare hands. And he was given the name the Grim Sleeper because of this supposed 14-year hiatus. In January of 2007, 25-year-old Janicia Peters was found murdered in the same location that Bernita Sparks was found almost 20 years earlier. In April of that year, law enforcement was notified about the DNA match on her body to the previous murders. So this one was also connected to that. She was shot in the lower back and placed in a trash bag. And just like hearing about how he just you know, he worked in the sanitation department and he literally is treating these women as trash. Yeah, just discarding them. Yeah, yeah. like putting them in trash bins and alleyways, putting like trash over them, putting them in a trash bag. Like, it's just horrific. Yeah. Something told investigators to look into the phone call when Barbara Ware's body was reported to be found. She was Franklin's third victim back in 1987. Okay. The caller said that he saw a man pull out her body and place debris on it. He said that the man was driving a blue and white van and also provided the license plate number. 
but it struck investigators as odd because he didn't give his name, and he said he couldn't see what the man looked like. But in the alleyway where her body was found, the only way it made sense for the caller to see what was going on is if the caller was there while the crime was happening. So so he's reporting on himself? That's what they believe. That's what it sounds like, but that's never confirmed if this was actually him or not. Okay. They played the 911 call, and it does sound kind of weird because at the end, they're like, okay, so what's your name? After he reports the crime. And he's like, ha ha ha, well, no, too many people know me. And then he just hangs up. It's just kind of weird. Like, why That's would he odd. add that? But there was a lot of crime going on in that area at that time. So it could just have been a drug dealer that watched it happen. It's possible. But they do bring it up as like, this is possible that he could have also called this in. Reported his own crime. Yeah. But some people do that. Some of these serial killers like to watch the police come and find the body. They, yeah. They get off on that stuff. So, And it did seem like he felt like he was above the law and like he would call the police to come and then maybe just watch them. and Because he wasn't scared. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wanted to see what they were going to do, like kind of like revel in it a little bit. But they couldn't locate where the call was made. Uh, but they did say that the closest payphone would have been a block away. So LAPD offered a $500,000 reward for any information regarding the murder and attempted murders. $500,000 in the in the 80s? Yeah. Half a million in the 80s. Yep. Wow. They really wanted to find him. Yes. And I mean, to me, that was like a good sign, you know, that they're actually like putting out a reward. They're, they're really trying to be vigilant and make it like a compelling offer for someone who knows something. Um, Did it work? Unfortunately, they were not able to, they didn't get any like good tips. So police decided to go a different route and they tested the DNA to see if they could locate potential family members of the suspect. They separated the Y chromosome from the DNA profile and searched the database of convicted felons for a male relative match. And I thought that was really smart that they could do that. Because then they would find a relative, and then they just kind of have to, like, go down the line to see who this person could be. But I guess it's harder than you think. They did that with the Golden State Killer, but it took them a long time to actually, like, break it down and remove people that were not related. Because, obviously, DNA is connected throughout so many different lines of families. So you really have to... Yeah, but I think what helped them here was... They were looking for convicted felons. So they found a convicted felon in that area. And then the familial DNA match was to a Christopher Franklin, who was actually the son of Of Lonnie. Lonnie? Oh, nice. Yeah. So Christopher, he had been arrested in 2009 um, on a weapons possession charge. And so that also linked Lonnie to him and... The fact that they figured out that Lonnie lived at the 81st Street address that uh, Anitria reported to the police. So I think he was in that area. The DNA is a match. Yes. Yep. So like all of the victims, there's like a little diagram that the police put together and they can see like the victims are kind of like clustered, clustered in in a similar area. So it helped them to kind of pinpoint where this killer could be. He's obviously familiar with the area. And then the fact that he was also a convicted felon, a convicted felon, but a um, sanitation worker. Oh, right. So he would obviously know where all the dumpsters were and have access to that. 
Yep. They were piecing that together, and that made him a pretty good suspect. So they would question, like, the neighbors in the area, and they discovered that he was known to be a friendly guy in the neighborhood, and that he would help people out with their cars, and people found him to be very approachable, not knowing that he was living this double life. After he was placed on police's radar, they did keep him under surveillance, and they knew they needed to confirm that he was actually the killer that they were looking for, so they had to find some kind of way to get his DNA. Now, this was interesting. So on July 5th of 2010, Franklin attended a birthday party at this pizza place. And while the LAPD still had him under surveillance, uh, one, of the, one of the officers acted like he was working there at the store. And so he, they cleaned up his plate. Smart. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is impressive. Um, the officer took a fork, two cups, um, a partially eaten slice of pizza and napkins that he had touched. He took him to the lab to have it tested. So when we see that on these movies, that's actually accurate. They can really do that. They can go and get something you discarded to get your DNA. It's totally legal. Yeah. And he would have not known any better. Like, you know, the... We just have... He's just at a party. Yeah. Enjoying his pizza. Yep. He would have no it's idea that... about to get caught. As he, as he should. Be, yes. Yeah. Now, they did obtain a small amount of DNA from the pizza, but most of the DNA that was obtained was from the napkin that he used to wipe his mouth. Oh, interesting. Over the cup and the fork? Um, I don't think they got much DNA from the cup and the fork, but they got most of it from the from that napkin. napkin. Okay. And it turned out to be a perfect match. Now, officers approached Franklin at his house while he was watering his lawn. They told him that they had a warrant for his arrest, and uh, he was calm and said he'd go with them. Investigators searched Franklin's home for a period of over three days, and there were over 800 items of evidence in his garage, and police had to put up a tent in front of his lawn just to go through everything. They found cameras and phones and pictures of the victims, cash and underwear, but specifically what law enforcement was looking for was that Polaroid that Anitra stated that he had taken of her during her attack. And she's the one that survived, the one that was shot in the chest. Yes. Okay. And they found it. They did? Yep. Is that her? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Is that after he shot her? Yeah. After he shot her, he took a picture of her. Oh my gosh. Well, after he shot her and then assaulted her. She's obviously like a she survivor. Survived, yeah. yeah. I can't imagine. Later on, she goes to testify in front of him and she takes her power back. And so that must have been like a really powerful moment. Good for her. That's awesome. Yeah. They found many pictures and IDs of other women, but law enforcement does not know where the bodies of these women are or if they're still alive. These women have not reappeared um, or contacted their family members. They are believed to be additional victims that he has murdered. And they can't ID them? They have IDs of the women, but they don't know where they are. And the family members haven't heard back from them. Oh, and they don't have the body. So they're assuming they, they're they also deceased and he murdered them. That's oh, what gosh. they do assume. Yeah. Now, Detective Paul Coulter interviewed Franklin. And of course, he denied he had anything to do with the murders. He stated he didn't know how all of his DNA ended up on all the bodies. Or how he took all the pictures. <laughs> or how he took their underwear and their IDs. Come on. Yeah. The jig is up. You're done. He played dumb the whole time. Okay. But despite his denial, in July of 2010, he was charged for the murder of 10 women and for the attempted murder of Anitria. 
his trial began in February of 2016, which was six years later. So I don't know. I mean, sometimes it takes this stuff a while to get to trial. Maybe they had to go through all the evidence. And um, it sounds like they had a lot too. They did. Yeah. Um, It took place at the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Justice Center. He pled not guilty. But okay, right. The prosecution had an overwhelming amount of evidence against him. And in May of 2016, the jury found him guilty on all counts. As the victim's families, which included Samara Harard and Anitria Washington, as they made their victim statements towards him, he just sat there seemingly inconvenienced and unremorseful. It just seems like he just didn't care. Why am I here? Why do I have to listen to this? Truly just evil. And in August of 2016, Judge Kathleen Kennedy sentenced Franklin to 10 death sentences. While he was on death row in San Quentin prison, Franklin was found dead in his cell on March 28th, 2020. And so he had only served three and a half years for these crimes. That's kind of like the one I'm covering next. He only serves a short amount of time. And that's just so, so frustrating for the families. I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure it's it's infuriating that he just doesn't get to serve his time. I do believe that he just died from like natural causes, though. So uh, it's believed that if he didn't start killing again in 2002, Franklin may never have been caught. The Polaroids of the many missing women prove that he had other victims, and it's speculated that he has murdered over 25 victims, including 36-year-old Thomas Steele who was a friend of one of the victims. His body was found in August of 1986. There was no evidence and no DNA at the crime scene, so they just couldn't... Do they think the friend maybe had a hunch that he had killed... I think so. ...their mutual friend, and so he just tried to get rid of him, so that way there'd be no no witnesses or nobody who knew? I think that's what's assumed, yeah. Christine Pelisek was one of the journalists who ultimately gave Franklin the name The Grim Sleeper. She wrote a piece in 2008, The Grim Sleeper Returns. He's murdering Angelinos as cops hunt his DNA. She stated that high officials were just not interested in the murders because they occurred in poor areas and the victims were all black women. This piece was also fundamental in informing the victims that a task force had been set up to catch a serial killer. So that's something that I read about later on. And I I mean, I think there's truth to that, right? I mean, we've seen that before. But I do think there was also a side of it where they were just trying to be cautious and not alert the killer that they were looking for him. That was a stupid choice, though, because there is somebody loose in the neighborhood or who's been killing. I, yeah. I do think there's something to the fact that because it was a poor neighborhood and the victims were black women, like, I think it's undeniable to say that in the past and even now don't care as much when it's a woman of color. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why we try to cover these cases. Yeah. Because they're just not, they just don't get the same reach or the same, um, Maybe, they just don't get the same attention. Yeah, they don't. And it's just not as vocalized as if it was someone who was more privileged and white. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, that is seen to be the case. So I do think there is truth to that. Matt sucks because that was back in 2008. You would have hoped that things would have been a little different. So that was the, the story of the Grim Sleeper. I 
was just like sickened doing this research on him and how he treated people and how he just thought he was like above above everything and he could just get away with it and he did he got away with it for a long time like at least a decade but a little longer right so he committed his first rape that was back in the 70s but his first murder was actually um in the 80s so and he wasn't caught until the early 2000s yeah so multiple decades he's he goes without being noticed right and like we said, he would have never gotten caught if he didn't start killing again, because they just wouldn't have found that those murders were linked to the ones back in the 80s. Now that there was DNA that they could cross-reference. and Yeah, exactly. Like, they may have just stayed cold cases. It, this one was rough. Yeah. And I hadn't heard about this one. I remember you telling me about the Grim Sleeper, and I didn't know what that meant. I thought it meant, like, maybe, like, the Night Stalker, like, he came in when people were sleeping or something yeah i wasn't really sure either yeah so i didn't know that it meant he took a hiatus for a long time and then started killing again but dna caught him yay for dna yep do you think he would have stopped killing or do you think i mean i feel like those pictures prove that he didn't stop i think you're right i think they may be wrong that he took a hiatus i think he just didn't get caught and maybe he changed up his mo and these other victims, they can't find the bodies. They have no idea how he killed them, right? right. But he, they know that they're most likely victims. So he was still killing this entire time. But just, I guess the police force wasn't aware of it. Yeah. It's just sad. You know, this is yeah. just a sad case for everybody. Uh, you know, it sucks that Anitria went through that and then she she did survive. But, you know, she got to face him. So at least there's that but you know all the other tragedies the tragedy that happens yeah yeah it's still not worth it exactly and she's traumatized yeah Yeah. no amount of justice will bring all those people back to their families so it's just heartbreaking and then he doesn't even serve the whole sentence i mean three years that's nothing yeah you know the world is better off without him but i'm sure they would have rather him like just brought it in jail for oh yeah years many more years absolutely now we're about to cover another <laughs> another one. Horrible serial another killer. Another horrible serial killer. Yes. This this guy's horrible too. He's actually the most notorious serial killer because he's killed over or around 250 people. Those numbers are astounding. I mean. It's like you can't even imagine. So he did this all as a practitioner. And so we'll go into that in episode 50. We're already on 50 I know, episodes. 50 wow. episodes. We're halfway there. That's crazy to me. Yes, we have to have some type of celebration when we reach 100 episodes. We maybe, should have some kind of celebration. Maybe we'll be in Japan. 50. <laughs> <laughs> well, 50 is today, so I didn't. We should have brought a cake. Dang it. Do you have any cake? I have ice cream oh, and damn. I have chocolate chip muffins and oh. um, wine. Okay. <laughs> this sounds like a celebration. <laughs> Can be. We can make one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, anything else? Or is that it? I think we've covered it all. And on to the next episode. Okay. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, even though we don't have videos up yet. Well, we have one video. (laughs) It's TikTok. We just wanted to see if it was working and if we figured it out right. But we will hopefully be getting some video podcasts up there. Yeah, we're going to get some video content up. Eventually. By the end of the year, I'm estimating. Because we'll have the podcast room done so we can do them there. 
That'll be nice. Yeah. I'll be super excited mm-hmm. for that. Super soundproofed. It'll be amazing. You won't hear the horse dog that Jennifer owns in the background anymore. <laughs> She's been good this episode, actually. She's really good. Jennifer put on some music, maybe put her to sleep. <laughs> I think it did. <laughs> Uh, if you have um, any show ideas, mm-hmm. can email us at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. Yes, Gary sent us an idea, and it looks like we're going to use it. It's actually a local story. We're going to look into that and cover it at some point. So thank you, Gary. Yeah, local stories are always interesting. It's close to home. Yes. And then also rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, five stars. Follow yes, us. Please. Subscribe. <laughs> all of it. Do all the good things. All the good things. And then yes. until next time. Stay caffeinated. Get hobbies and don't murder people. Bye. Bye.